Uh, it's a joy to be with you all. Uh, I have not been here in a while, but uh, I know many of you. I think, I hope this lands well um, <laughs> in general, but uh, it's really awesome to see a bunch of people that I don't know because uh, a lot of you were at 12 South and then left with Matt and Lee and Nick to come over here and then, but like so many of you I've never seen before and that means that like uh, the Lord is, is working with. And so I, I do miss seeing many of you, but uh, really glad that I don't know many of you. Uh, it's a good sign. So, um, yes, we have been studying the first 11 chapters of Genesis this spring, and uh, we've seen how the world came to be, and then we saw what went wrong with the world, and then we even have seen how the Lord has promised to make the world right again. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the flood, the deluge. Uh, where the Lord poured out his righteous, just wrath on mankind and on the world. Uh, but one family survived, Noah, if you've heard the story. And we're going to pick up today after the flood to kind of look at how Noah and life continues after the flood and what kind of guides them uh, into, their, uh, into their journey. So Andrew Ross, who I don't know, here he is. Give it up for Andrew. Hey, guys. Um, but um, is going to read our passage for us. We're skipping around a little bit. This is Genesis 8, starting in verse 18, and then we'll jump into chapter 9 a little bit too. It'll be on the screen. Uh, so uh, Genesis 8, 18, 9, uh, 1, and 8 through 17. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of uh, every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the Lord, on the, on the altar. Well, not on the Lord. That would be a little weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, uh, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your, offering, uh, and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall, be, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is uh, the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrew. Um, 
Yeah, so life after the ark. Uh, it's kind of hard sometimes in these familiar Bible stories if you grew up in the church. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, these, uh, these stories that are kind of well-known, it's hard to not believe that they're not make-believe, that like these aren't fairy tales, that these actually happened. And so if we can kind of go in our mind's imag- imagination to this scene where Noah is leaving the ark and setting his feet on dry ground for the first time in 40 days, actually 120 days, and then he's, he's looking at the desolation, right? Like the, the children's Bible version of this story is that there's smiling giraffes, you know, everywhere and really two of them. But there's like, there's like all happiness in the, in the rainbows there and everybody's feeling happy. But the, you need to go to the place that is not that scene because Noah's looking at a desolate world and living through what he just lived through and wondering, what are we gonna do? And so as we imagine this scene, I want to just look at the first thing that he does. Just, it's really remarkable. The first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark on Mount Ararat, wherever that is, somewhere in the Middle East, he puts his feet on dry ground, and the first thing he does is he offers an altar on the Lord, apparently. No, to the Lord. He offers, he offers an altar to the Lord. And, and this, this should stop us for just a second because we love to view this story from kind of our postmodern, post-enlightenment, 2023 Western mind and go, who does this God of violence think that he is? Where does he get off and how does he, was, this, was the flood even fair? Was the flood even just? And you need to know that Noah, the one that actually lived through the flood, he thought the flood was very just. Here's how we know that, because for him to get off the ark and offer an offering to the Lord is a sign of gratitude and a sign of humility. He's not getting off the ark in this entitled outrage, thinking, Lord, who do you think you are and why do you think you have a right to do this? He's getting off the ark and going, I can't believe we made it out alive. Lord, you had every right to do this, and we are so grateful that we didn't get swept up in the flood too. Noah's not angry. He's grateful. It's a whole other sermon about how to view this God of the Old Testament, but there is, there is some truth. I want you to hear it from the one who lived through it. He wasn't angry. He was humble and grateful. And then after the sacrifice, we hear the Lord give a state of the union, a state of the world. He gives an assessment of how the world is doing after the flood. It's brief, but in verse 21, you can throw this up there. He says this, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that's of the sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, okay. After the flood, the flood was supposed to wipe all evil off the earth. The flood was supposed to clean the world up. The flood was supposed to wipe the slate clean so that we could all start over. The Lord says something shocking. He actually says the same line, almost verbatim, that we hear at the beginning of the flood, before the flood. Why the flood's going to happen in the first place, from Genesis chapter 6. For every intention of man's heart is evil. And then he adds this little, you know, adverbial phrase, his heart is evil from his youth. Which that Hebrew term right there literally means like from childbirth. Like from the youngest part that a, a human heart exists, it's evil from that point. So literally the Lord is saying, hey, I'm, I'm making this promise that I'm never going to destroy the earth again, even though man is still evil from birth. That, that should startle us a little bit, that the flood didn't cure it. The flood was supposed to wipe it all clean and have us all start over, and we have a beautiful new beginning now, and maybe this time the world can get it right again. But the moments after the flood, an offering goes up, and the Lord says, for every intention of man's heart is, parentheses, still evil. 
Life after the flood is still a mess. It's still a wreck. It's still bad. In fact, if you read on from our passage, after our rainbow passage, the very next story, Noah plants a vineyard. The vineyard grows. Noah makes wine in his wine press, and he gets drunk. He gets plastered, and he stumbles back to his tent, and one of his sons does something wildly sexually inappropriate to his dad. We're like one season after the flood, and it's a wreck. Some commentators have noted that Noah's continued evil with his family after the flood potentially should deserve more punishment than the flood itself because they've actually seen what God's wrath could do and should do to evil in the world, and yet they're still doing it. They're still in a rebellion against him. Okay, so that's kind of the state of things. It's bad. It's still evil. It's still a wreck. And then, even though it's a mess, God does something ludicrous in chapter 9, verse 1. He still entrusts his mission in the world to these sinful people. And God blessed Noah. What? God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That, if you've been following along, that's the same exact phrase from Genesis chapter 1 that Adam and Eve were given. Man and woman's task and mandate in the world to fill the world with God's beauty, to fill the world with God's goodness, to populate the world and send out God's glory to the edges of the earth. Noah and his family are given the same mandate that Adam and Eve are, but now we know something different. Adam and Eve were given that mandate in a pre-fall, pre-sin world. Noah's given the same mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, bless the world with beauty and flourishing. He's given that mandate knowing that the intention of man's heart is evil all the time. So how in the world is this supposed to work? How will these sinful people accomplish the task and the mandate to spread God's goodness when they know that they are crooked deep down? Well, Noah and we are given something. Noah and his family are given something that will carry them. And it's the dense paragraph of chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. I'm not going to read all of it again, but we're going to pluck a few things out of it. Noah and his family are given something to carry them in this seemingly impossible task of a desolate world that they've been called to refill and repopulate and rebeautify. Knowing that they are evil, they're given a gift. They're given a covenant and a sign for the covenant. The word covenant appears in this dense paragraph of chapter 9, seven times in nine verses, which is the Hebrew alarm system telling you, pay attention to this word. It's the first time that the word covenant appears in the Bible. Here's what a covenant is. It's a very uh, brief definition of a covenant. But a covenant is a permanent agreement initiated by God that establishes the nature of his relationship with his people. Covenant is a permanent agreement initiated by God that establishes the nature of the relationship with his people. Many more covenants will come in scripture. This is the first time we see the word in scripture. And here's the covenant that God makes. Here's the agreement that God initiates that is gonna establish the relationship with his people. He will never destroy the earth again. And the paragraph that tells us about that agreement, the paragraph that tells us about that arrangement and that covenant between God and his people in the world is really repetitive. Andrew knows, he just read it. Like it kind of seems to say the same thing over and over again. So it's difficult to kind of see all the connections and what it, God, you just kind of seem to be repeating yourself 
to make a point, but really three things come out of that paragraph to Noah and to us as we look at it. So three things about the covenant and the sign of the covenant as Noah faces this sin-stained, wrecked, desolate world that he's been called to refill and walk back in and rebuild. Noah's going to need these three things from the covenant and from the sign of the covenant. Covenant and the sign speak to Noah's present, they speak to Noah's future, and they speak to Noah's forever, and therefore ours too. They speak to Noah and our present, to Noah and our future, and to Noah and our forever. So first, how does the covenant and the sign speak to Noah's present tense? Look with me again at verse 13. It says this. It says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I've set my bow in the cloud. Some of your Bible translations may say, I have set my rainbow in the cloud. Now, that's not a bad translation because that's certainly what God was talking about. But there is no Hebrew word for rainbow. It didn't exist yet. There is a Hebrew word for bow. And the Hebrew word for bow is literally talking about a war bow, like a bow and arrow. Any archers in the room? Didn't think so. The, 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 bow, the bow that he's talking about is literally a war bow. And this word, this Hebrew word, keshet, is used about 70 other times in the Old Testament. And every other time it's used in the Old Testament, when God says, I have set my bow in the clouds, if you study that Hebrew word keshet, every other time it's used, 68 other times, it's talking about a war bow used in war or hunting. And most of the time that the word is used in the Old Testament, it's applied to a personified Yahweh, to a personified God who uses his bow and his arrows of wrath to bring judgment and justice to his enemies and his foes. Those that would oppress the poor and the marginalized, those that have rebelled against him and worship false idols. He brings out his bow of wrath, he brings out his arrows of justice, and he fires them on his enemies. This is the Lord who defeats his enemies and brings justice to the world with his bow of wrath. And so here's what God just told Noah and you. I'm setting my bow of wrath aside. I'm setting it aside, and you need to know that with all the evil in the world, Noah, and all the evil in you, Noah, you need to know that my disposition towards the world and my disposition towards you will not be one of wrath, but one of mercy, because I'm taking my war bow and I'm setting it aside. So for Noah, for Noah, who knows what the Lord has just said about the human heart, that it's evil from birth, and for Noah, who knows what God's justice and wrath can do and should do to the world, he just lived through the flood. Noah was just given a covenant for his present tense moment and a sign of that covenant for his present tense moment to dare to believe that as God deals with him, as God sees him in the present moment, God's disposition towards him will not be a disposition of anger and wrath, but a disposition of mercy and compassion. And then it gets better. Because not only is the Lord setting his bow of wrath aside, but if you've ever seen a rainbow, if you've ever seen a bow, do you know which way the bow of God's wrath is now pointing? The rainbow would let you know that it's not pointed down towards the earth, it's actually pointed back at himself. 
The bow of God's wrath is pointed up. It's not pointed towards the world. And here's what this symbolism is saying to Noah, even if Noah didn't fully understand it. The next time this arrow of God's wrath is flung, it will fire on himself and not on man. Now for a Jew to read that, the original reading audience of this text would have been Israelites on their way to the promised land from Egypt. For a Jew to read that, they may believe that. They may go, whoa, that's amazing. His bow of wrath is pointed up. But how in the world could God ever do that? How could God ever fire his arrow of wrath on himself? And this is how the Christian is able to understand the Old Testament in some ways better than even Jews could ever understand it, is that only in Jesus does the rainbow actually make any sense. Jesus would be the one who took the arrow of God's wrath. Jesus, being fully God, would take the arrow of God's wrath fully on himself. Jesus Jesus was crucified. Do you know what kills crucifixion victims? They suffocate. It's literally this like symbolic and literal moment where Jesus is dying the same way you would, the same way everyone in the flood died. They suffocated. They drowned. That Jesus literally is the one who drowned under the weight of God's judgment. Jesus took the arrow of God's wrath himself saying, this is what the sign that was given to Noah was actually about. How could heaven ever take the arrow of God's wrath? Heaven would have to come to earth and then take it upon himself. Now, Noah couldn't see Jesus in this moment, but here's what Noah could see in his present moment. He could see a God who was giving him a present tense gift to show him that the bow of God's wrath was now being set aside, which let Noah know that God's disposition towards man and towards the world was not one of wrath, but one of mercy. That's what it says to Noah's present tense. You need to know on these first steps out of the ark, my disposition is no longer one of wrath. Let me show you where I'm putting my bow. And then the Lord tells Noah and tells us how the rainbow, the bow, and the covenant will protect Noah in his future. Look with me again at verse 14 and 15. It says, this is the Lord speaking. He says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Okay, so the Lord tells Noah to leave the ark again. Try to go to this scene in your mind's like redeemed imagination. And the Lord tells Noah about, hey, I'm putting my bow in the clouds. Here's what the covenant means. I'm no longer going to store the earth again. But then he says this, verse 14, when I bring clouds over the earth. Okay, go to that moment with me for a minute. What do you think that moment would have been like for Noah? The moment where Noah saw rain clouds roll in. What happened to Noah the last time he saw rain clouds roll in? What happened to the world the last time rain clouds came for the very first time in the world's history? That's what we're told, that this was the first time God brought rain clouds. And what happened to the world when God brought rain clouds? He decimated the world. So imagine Noah, sweet little old pre-drunk Noah, coming and getting, getting off the ark. And the Lord says, hey, there's coming days, there's coming weeks, there's coming months For the rest of your life, Noah, I'm going to be bringing rain clouds to you. What do you think Noah would be thinking or feeling when he saw clouds roll in again? Triggered much? (laughs) Trauma much? Like, what do you think this moment is like for him? 
Does your trauma ever get triggered? The answer is yes. Do the clouds of your life ever remind you of past clouds? Do you know what it means to be triggered? Like actually, truly triggered? Like has the pain of a breakup for you, a romantic breakup, where someone chose to leave you, they looked at you and said, I don't want to sign up to love you anymore. Is it possible that you could be really sad about that, but what that's actually doing to you is it's ripping the scab off of when your dad left you. And someone looked at you and said, I don't want to sign up to love you anymore either. Is that possible? That the sadness that we experience from one cloud could remind us of another cloud? Is it possible that when you are looking for a new job, and you can't figure out what you're supposed to do and where am I supposed to land and where would God have me and what am I, what's my vocation supposed to be and you feel the chaos of the unknown horizon that you can't see over the horizon of. Is it possible that that chaos reminds you of when you were little and you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from or you didn't know who was going to take care of you and so the chaos of your adult life of just trying to find a job, what's the big deal? Oh, I don't know, it's just reminding me that I've always believed that no one would ever take care of me. Is it possible that your trauma can get triggered all the time? Is it possible that if you've known grief and loss and death, is it possible that any time there is grief and loss and death in your community, you are triggered to your own memory of the last time you experienced grief and loss and death? Literally, triggering is a brain-wiring issue. In some ways, this is not taking away our agency. This is not taking that away. But in some ways, you don't have a choice because your fight or flight, your survival prefrontal cortex kicks in, and you smell something that you've smelled before, you witness something you've witnessed before, and your entire body is wrapped up in a triggering moment to remember, I've seen this cloud before, and the last time this cloud was here, it devastated me. You don't even have to be connecting all the dots in your own cognitive mind for that to be happening to you. What do we normally do when we get triggered? In Mark chapter 4, New Testament, Jesus uh, is on the boat with his disciples, and he's in a storm. He's in an actual storm with actual rain clouds that are literal and metaphorical. They had an actual storm rolling in on the Sea of Galilee, which his disciples would have known the, the tumult of these kinds of storms. They would have had friends who had died in these kinds of storms. They would have experienced these storms before. And a storm rolls in, and they can't handle it, and it's terrifying them. They are being triggered. And Jesus is asleep on the stern of the boat. And they go and they wake him up and they scream at him. Don't you care about us? Why are you sleeping? If, if you cared about us, you wouldn't be asleep. Do you know what's happening in my like, prefrontal cortex? We don't know about those things yet, Jesus, but it feels like something's going on up here that I can't quite figure out how to survive right now because you seem to be asleep, and there's a storm that's going to kill us, and now I'm terrified. So what does that say about you? That's what we do, too. That when storms roll in, when clouds roll in, the most instinctual place in us goes straight to the accusation of the Almighty. Clearly, you don't care. Because if you cared, you wouldn't have let this happen. Where were you? You would have stopped this if you cared, Jesus. 
And because it did happen, you must not care. Because whether we realize it or not, we have working definitions, all of us. We have working definitions of what our, our, our life is supposed to look like, what our life is supposed to feel like, and what our life is supposed to be like. And when those expectations don't get met, we usually don't pause to realize, oh, what expectations have I been carrying around? We usually use those dashed expectations to say this, well, it's pretty clear that the Lord doesn't care about me. Because if this weren't happening, then the Lord and I would be on the same page about what my life is supposed to look like, but the fact that he's letting this happen means he hasn't checked with me about what my life is supposed to look like, and so he must not care about me. We will use our circumstances, we will use our clouds, our storms, our troubles, and in our triggering, we will use our moments to make declarations, not just about people close to us, we will use our circumstances to make declarations about the Lord himself. That's what we do when we get triggered. We're terrified. And we begin to write stories about the Lord. And here's what Noah is given. Here's what you are given. The Lord gives the rainbow into like that place. He's literally telling Noah, you're going to get triggered by rain clouds. <laughs> and when rain clouds roll in, when I send rain clouds, by the way, which is a whole other sermon, when I send clouds, when triggering happens, when pain rolls in, and when that moment it is so easy to write a story about the Lord, the Lord says, that's when I'm bringing a rainbow to you. Now, the rainbow doesn't take away the clouds. It certainly doesn't take away the pain. But the rainbow comes right alongside the storms that are causing the triggering. And here's what the rainbow does. It writes a different story for us about the Lord than the one the storm has written for us about the Lord. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why did you let this happen? Why did you take this away? I wasn't prepared for this loss. I wasn't prepared for this chaos. I'm not okay in this storm. And here's what the rainbow comes alongside and speaks to us. God, what are you doing? The rainbow says, I don't know what the answer is to that question, but I know what the answer is not to that question. I don't know why the clouds came, but the rainbow is the assurance that the clouds are not full of God's wrath for you. Because that, that, that's what's the easiest thing to believe in our trauma and our triggering and our suffering and our pain and our loss two things that are the easiest narrative to write about the Lord. You've either A, forgotten about me, or B, you're punishing me for something that I deserve. And so when suffering hits, when hardship hits, we believe one of those two things almost immediately. This is, this is what Job's friends do to him. If you've read Job, this is what Job's friends do to him. The whole book, Job, really sorry about the fact that you've lost everything, but you probably deserve it. Like, God's good, and if you're not good, he's probably going to teach you a lesson. Or, man, God, is, God must be, like, off doing something else because he's clearly forgotten about you. What did you do to make God forget about you? You should probably try to get right with him and make him remember you again. You're going to be downcast. Well, 
you probably deserve to be downcast right now. What have you done to create this chaos for you? What have you done to create this despairing for you? And those narratives that spin, that what the narratives that the clouds are telling us, you will not be able to fend off those narratives on your own. You won't be. You're not skilled enough. You will need a God who assures you himself that those narratives aren't true about him. You might need a sign. You might need a sign that literally shows you who God is and what he's like. Noah, here's a sign. Because when the clouds roll in, you're going to need this sign. Hey, Midtown West, you're, you're going to need a sign. And the Lord is saying, I've got one for you. That when it gets really, really dark, here's a sign that lets you know who I am and what I'm like, not what your storm is telling you I am and what I'm like. And so when rainbows appear, they are meant to remind us that you have a God who never forgets. When rainbows appear, they are meant to remind us that you have a God who never forgets. He never forgets his promises. He never forgets his heart towards you. He never forgets you. And as you walk into your future, Noah, Midtown West, and you see clouds, you're going to need this promise. You're going to need to remember that God never forgets. And then lastly, the covenant and the sign is not just a reminder for the present, meaning I need to know that God has set his bow aside. It's not just a reminder for the future and what clouds will try to tell me in the future. The covenant and the sign is also a promise for forever. How am I going to do it on time? Evan said I was going to preach an hour and a half. I might, okay, if I feel like it. What? I don't know. I think I'm okay. 12 South can wait. They'll get a rainbow or something. God hasn't forgotten you. Your pastor has, but God hasn't. <laughs> Verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Everlasting covenant. It ever lasts. As in it lasts forever. Do you know how long forever is? In fact, that was just one of the phrases to pluck out that this passage is trying to say. All throughout the passage that Andrew read, all throughout it, from chapter 8 through this section of chapter 9, there is this almost annoying amount of repetition of language, of vast permanence. Like it sounds hyperbolic, it sounds like Moses who wrote this is exaggerating, but it's the Lord who's speaking. All throughout the passage, there's, there's phrases like this, never again, ever again, never again, all flesh, all living creatures, for all generations to come. Forever, 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 everlasting, everlasting, everlasting. And here's what the Lord is saying. Instead of destruction, the earth will be blessed forever. This passage is showing God's persistent allegiance to the earth and to earth's inhabitants, and it's showing God's intention to not only sustain the earth, but to remake the earth one day. This is, this is the Bible's first whisper. This is the Bible's first promise that the Lord in his mission in the world intends not merely to save souls. He intends to mend the world. 
which includes you. It's just not limited to you. He intends to restore what was shattered in Eden. A perfect creation was always God's intention. And the flood and the rainbow after it, the everlasting covenant of the rainbow, is telling you God intends to make all things new, and the rainbow is your guarantee of how serious he takes that promise. George Matheson was a Scottish hymn writer and pastor in the late 1800s. I went to Scotland last year for like 10 days, so I know all about him. But I, uh, I, I did actually see the church where he was a pastor. Um, he was engaged until his fiance um, learned that he was going blind and there was nothing the doctors could do, so she told him just weeks before the wedding that she would not go through life with a blind man. So she left him. And so he's devastated, he's, he's been studying in seminary, he wants to be a pastor, and he thinks like my whole life is over now, until his sister decides in his isolation and in his heartache that she will be his full-time caregiver. So she moves in with him, and she literally walks him around everywhere, and he becomes a prolific writer through her, and he becomes a prolific preacher through her. He preaches blind, literally. And he's walked everywhere, and he's led everywhere, and he and his sister have a bond beyond just their, their siblinghood. And until years later, after years and years of ministry with his sister by his side, she gets engaged to be married. Who will care for him now, a blind man? And not only that, but we talked about triggering, and he talks about this in some of his journals that I read this week, that... Can you imagine the triggering that took place for him on the eve of his sister's wedding? It brought fresh reminders of his own heartache and abandonment. On the eve when someone was not only uh, taking his sister away from him, but was also, oh, she is worth being loved. He wrote a famous hymn that we began our time with, Oh, love that will not let me go. And in his grief and his loneliness and his heartache and the storm of the trauma and the triggering is happening to him. He pins these words. And listen to this third line that he writes. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. George Matheson was so gripped and grabbed by the promise of the rainbow that he actually, he couldn't even see rainbows anymore. He's just remembering the visual of the rainbow and remembering what it says to him, and he believed that the rainbow spoke into his weeping and wailing and isolation and told him, George, there is coming a morning where there will be no more tears. George, there's coming a morning where there will be no more blindness, there will be no more abandoned altars, there will be no more solitude, there will be no more wondering what God is doing. The rainbow said to him and says to you, one day the Lord will wipe away all your tears. One day the Lord will heal all of your wounds. One day he will cause the rivers to dance and the trees to clap. And one day there will be no more fear of death in all of its forms. 
And every time you see a rainbow, you should remember not just that God has set his bow aside. You should not just remember that they write better stories than clouds do. You should also see a rainbow and remember and believe you have a God who is committed to remaking everything. You have a God who has committed a promise to restore creation. You have a God who has committed and promised to give you forever bliss one day. Scientifically, I'm told that all that a rainbow is is light refracting off of a prism. And after a storm, when raindrops are literally still suspended in the atmosphere and light shines through them, those raindrops become a prism for the light to refract through and then we see a rainbow. But technically, science would tell you, I'm not putting science in quotes, I'm telling you like I, like, I should be in quotes. I, I'm telling you that I read, that I read science this week. Uh, Technically and scientifically, there's always moisture in the atmosphere, which means technically there are rainbows everywhere all the time. We just can't always see them. And the Lord in his mercy only makes them visible to us when the rain is dense enough and the clouds are dark enough. That's when the promise shines through. And so when he shows you the next rainbow, would you dare to pause for long enough to believe what they're telling you about your present, to believe what they're telling you about your future, to believe what they're telling you about your forever, and believe that the promise was not in vain? Let's pray. Jesus, um, the faces I do know in this room are full of clouds. And they need to know, just like Noah and just like George Matheson, that your promise has not been in vain. That morn will tearless be. Yes, you've set your bow aside. Yes, you write stories when clouds try to write other ones. So in our triggering and in our trauma and our loss and our heartache and our confusion, Would you have us lift our eyes over the horizon to the day that's coming that your rainbow tells us is coming. It reminds us of your commitment to make all things new starting with us. We need it. We cling to it. And when we can't cling to it, would you cling to us? We pray in your name. Amen.